Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Brendan Kiley. He's an author of many books, one of which is a New York Times bestseller, Tradition, The Last True Love Story. Today, we're going to be talking to Brendan about racism, an important topic for him and an important topic in my life. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Brendan. Thanks so much for having me here. This is great. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I am also. And by the, uh, the miracle of uh, technology, uh, you're sitting uh, in Manhattan, and here I am in Northern <laughs> California. That's right. That's right. We're going to jump, ri- <laughs> jump right in here, Brendan. Um, how do you feel about reparations for the black people of America? That we are jumping right in. Uh, you know, uh, there's no reason in my mind why um, it feels like it's like people have such a hard time saying I'm sorry. People have a really hard time saying I'm sorry, and I uh, I don't know why, and uh, and I don't understand, frankly, what all the hubbub is. There are many forms that reparations could take, and I think that's a, a, a worthy debate, but I can't understand why we wouldn't um, uh, begin to consider in some fashion what reckoning with our history really means and, and considering how to um, rebalance uh, some of the, uh, the injustice that's been done before. So I appreciate that. Thanks. Let's talk a little. Tell us about your book. Sure. Uh, so it's called The Other Talk because uh, I think as many of your listeners will be familiar with the, um, the talk that so many families of color, black families, indigenous families around the country have. And The Other Talk is a talk that um, I'm trying to sort of create a language and a framework for white families to, uh, to begin to reckon with their own racial identity. Because as certainly was the case in my family growing up and, and many white people I know, we may talk about racism, but we don't talk about our own uh, racial identity and how it impacts our lives and the lives of others. So that's what the other talk is. It's a book that tries to, by using examples and stories from my own life, I, uh, I try to um, throw myself under the bus <laughs> and, and use examples from my own life to say, here's what I didn't know um, that I didn't even know at the time. And now that I know more, I can, I can demonstrate um, for others how I might have behaved had I known more at that time, but maybe even more importantly, how moments from my life, say my family's ability to access the GI Bill, is actually connected to a larger systemic um, inequity uh, that is uh, formed by systemic racism. Let's use that example of your family's uh, ability to uh, get the GI Bill uh, and and tell us about that, please, and how it relates to racism. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my grandfather grew up in an Irish immigrant household in Western Massachusetts, um, and he was a soldier in World War II. Um, When he came home, um, thankfully, he came home, uh, and um, uh, he was able to access the benefits of the GI Bill. He was able to get an advanced degree in chemistry, uh, which enabled him to join the burgeoning plastics industry at the time. 
um, which I'm sure other guests on your uh, podcast would debate the merits of that in the long run. But at, at any rate, uh, the uh, it, it, it enabled him to to be buoyed in the beginning of his career, and maybe even more importantly, it gave him access to home loans and. Um, the invitation by real estate brokers at the time to to take a look at houses in uh, neighborhoods and cities that were uh, were rapidly growing property values were were increasing. Um, this is great. This is uh, wonderful. Many 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 veterans took advantage of these benefits. It's also true that it's predominantly white veterans who were given access to these benefits, and it's also true that um, uh, predominantly veterans of color. Um, my the fellow my grandfather's fellow veterans were not able to access those same loans. That means two generations later, I benefit from the um, the access that my grandfather had, and the uh, two generations later, children of veterans of color from World War II have not been given that same um, intergenerational wealth as a starting point to to uh, to give them access in their in their world. That's what systemic racism looks like. Um, and so it's easy for me to talk about that and, and tell that story for my family because it doesn't diminish any of the hard work that my grandfather had has done uh, ha had done. Um, it doesn't. I, I love my grandfather. I love my family. Um, he's he's a great guy. He's one of my heroes, and he had advantages that many folks of color did not have. That's a wonderful example. I was about to say to you, let's trade. You said you were going to talk about examples from your life. And I was yeah. going to say, well, let's trade examples. But I have very different kind of examples than you do because I've been focusing in a different way, being a clinical psychologist. So, yeah. you know, the examples of, in my life are, for example, when I was 16 years old and a freshman at the University of Illinois, and I went with my friend Abe Woodson, who was from White Plains, New York. I was from Manhattan. So we were both New Yorkers at the University of Illinois, a thousand miles from home. He was 17 years old and he was an All-American uh, football player at the University of Illinois uh, on a wow. football scholarship. He also happened wow. to be uh, very black of color. And so uh, one day Abe and I uh, took a walk together out of the dorm and we went to get a haircut and uh, we walked into the barber shop together, and the next thing I knew, uh, two of the barbers were grabbing him and throwing him out of the barber shop. Uh, oh and of God. course, so that that's the kind of story that sort of stands out in my life, a very a, a different kind of story, and I have many of those to share with you today. Let's go on with some more stories from your life and from the book that you wrote and tell us about, uh, you know, uh, being white and 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 the view of uh, how you've learned about racism, institutionalized that is. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I, I I appreciate your story because I I think it's really important to when we're talking about racism to to be especially I, I identify as a white person if I if I hasn't said it so far and and, and we're on a podcast, so I want to make sure people uh, clearly understand where I'm coming from. Um, and I, uh, I think it's important to talk about racism in all the interpersonal ways that, that it, it manifests, uh, not unlike the story you just shared right there, but also the, the larger systemic and structural issues. And so another example from my own life would be uh, that I mentioned in the book is um, uh, I was uh, in Washington, D.C. with a friend of mine. Um, my friend is black. I'm white. Uh, we walk into the bank. My friend is the client. He goes to the teller to ask the teller to, you know, to, to do a transaction. The teller says, for a transaction like that, I need to go get the manager. Um, 
She goes and gets the manager. The manager comes out of the back office. He's a white man like me. He walks right across the lobby past my friend who is the actual client, sticks his hand out to me and says, how can I help you, sir? And the reason why I share that story, um, uh, not only because of the immediate dismissal of, of my friend in the lobby there, but that those kinds of assumptions are made about me all the time in my life. People often assume when I walk into a room that I may be the person in charge, whereas my friend, who very well might be the person in charge, um, is not as easily assumed to be the one in charge. I, I think it's really important for us to recognize that when we talk about white privilege, the subtitle of my book is Reckoning with Our White Privilege, that this is what privilege looks like. It doesn't have to necessarily be wealth and economics. And, uh, and you know, there are plenty of people who are, who are white, who I know, who are struggling economically. Um, but when we talk about white privilege, we talk about these advantages, these social advantages uh, that are then linked to larger systemic and institutional advantages. So an example of that would be like my, my brother-in-law, who's a medical doctor, who's married to a, a dental hygienist who's, uh, who's black. And when they travel on airplanes, they've had the uh, situation whereby they're online together and the people uh, collecting tickets and all relate to her as if she's an employee uh, working for him, carrying the baby rather than the mother of their baby. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. That's yeah. I mean, all of these stories, right? I mean, so this is why I, I want to write the book because I think I, for me growing up, when I spoke about racism, we always spoke about what was happening to other people. And I want to, I want to reframe the conversation in, in a white family like my own, for us to really drill down and ask, what does it mean to be white? Um, obviously, race is a social construct. The American Association of Biological Anthropologists, you know, in so many words, says it's a it's a legacy holdover from European colonialism. Race is a social construct. It's not a biological fact. It's a social fact, and it has social impact in our lives. But therefore, white folks like me, I think, need to grapple with what that social fact means for us. And for me, what I'm trying to talk about in the book is how can we reckon with and be honest with and share what it means to have um, unfair advantages uh, in our society? I thought the example that you gave was really a, a, an excellent one of how the, um, the bank manager walked right by and, uh, and said, talk to you. But the one that's even more significant in a way, if there, it's, I say more significant, but I realize as I say that, to say more significant is like saying it hurts less, you know, more to hit your thumb with a hammer than to hit your index finger with a hammer, because right. all of the, all of these things are so 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 dangerous and so so terribly punitive. But your example, yeah. your example of the GI Bill was an example on a, on a really grand scale, wasn't it? Because it gets yeah. to the heart of of the damage of racism, which is socioeconomic. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you can look back through history and look at um, how quickly uh, um, people of Mexican descent were deported um, in the early uh, 1900s, uh, whereas at the same time, uh, an entire quarter of the population of Sweden uh, emigrated from Sweden, many of whom came to the United States and were not deported. And you look at those and the, the economic ramifications of something like that and how s people from Sweden, um, in effect, you, you might 
you know, casually say uh, became white as they uh, when they became American um, uh, were granted access. And again, intergenerational wealth over time, people, descendants of those immigrants have had access to our uh, our economy in a way that um, many of the families who who, who continue to get uh, very quickly and easily deported um do not have access to. An example that, that sort of runs us into the future, so I was talking about the sort of mass deportation of people of Mexican descent in the early 1900s. Um, it was only uh, within the last 10 years that the, there was a, a, a major lawsuit against Motel 6 because a, num- a, a handful of the locations of, of Motel 6 um, were uh, employees were calling ICE when people with Hispanic-sounding last names, I'm putting that in air quotes, um, uh, uh, registered for to, to spend the night. I mean, that's that that kind of exclusion uh, has ramifications over and over and over again. Um, the the uh, people of, of Latinx descent in the United States um, uh, are, are the most hesitant to sign up for healthcare insurance because they're afraid of uh, the kind of uh, racial discrimination that they will receive um, by sign- when when interacting in our healthcare system. Again, these stats are all in my book and and you know and, and well documented, but those are large structural uh, racism problems. In the, in the beautiful little coastal community I live in, uh, in Mendocino County, uh, a town called Fort Bragg, California, where 40% of our population are Hispanic, there has yeah. been a tremendous hesitancy on the part of the Hispanic community to get vaccinated because they're afraid that they'll get on some kind of government list or some yeah. kind of connection with the government, they'll get on the radar screen and then end up getting in trouble. And and that's such a great example of the larger ramifications of how racism then affects the entire society. Because think about, the that isn't only affecting, though again, to your point earlier about hitting the thumb or the forefinger, this is all pain, but it's it's uh, the immediate racism that affects their lives, but because their 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 hesitancy um, to get vaccinated stems from the racism in our communities and the racism of our national policy, uh, it's going to affect us all in one way or another because we need the vaccines. I mean, that's that's just essential. We need to get vaccinated, and it's one of the 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 greatest risks to our society is. Um, a diminishing return on people getting vaccinated. And to think that racism is at fault for for stopping people from getting vaccinated is another example of how it harms us all. When I was five years old, I was living off base uh, in the swamps of Florida. My dad was uh, a a colonel in the the Army Air Force uh, and a dental surgeon, and uh, we lived off base. uh, And... um, Sometimes he would take me to the base. I was very lucky. I was the only kid on the base. My dad was much older and he volunteered. And so I get to do things like climb through the belly of big bombers and sit in those, <laughs> sit in those, sit in those plastic bubbles where the machine gunners were, you know, and wow. have all kinds of fun as a little boy. And sometimes we would go to the movies together. And one time we went to the movies and we're online uh, at the club. And I look over across the yard and I see a line of black people. Mm-hmm. And I asked my dad, I'm about five and a half years old, I said, Dad, what's that? And he said, well, that's another movie theater. And I said, well, why are they all black and we're all white? And, wow. and, and he said, because the, 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 the Army Air Force segregates the soldiers 
uh, black and white. And so I kept looking over at them and, 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 and curious. And I saw this one fellow, he looked to be about 17 or 18 years old. I don't know how old he was. And he caught my eye and we stood there staring at each other. And I saw the abject fear in his eyes. And I remember it to this moment. It's uh, 77 years later. And it's as if he's standing right next to me because wow. he was he was signaling to me for what it was like to be standing on a segregated line when he was fighting for his country. That's unbelievable. I, I that's that's quite a story and I I wonder I wonder what he saw in your eyes. That's a very that's a great question. I love that question. What did he I, see in my eyes? I hope I hope that he saw empathy and compassion and love, but I really yeah. don't, you know, I, I, he may have also seen fear because, you know, right. what is, what is this all about? Right. And I, and I, and I, I only asked that question because you, you set up the story so powerfully that it makes it just, uh, maybe it's, forgive me, maybe it's the fiction writer in me, but I immediately thought of, of, of what it's like from the other perspective of, of another person in that, in that story. And, and yes. I, so I, I appreciate that story. And I, it would be a powerful thing to, I mean, how, uh, how hard it would be, but, but it would be a powerful thing to, to try to find that person and, and swap stories. I've told that story a few other times at lectures throughout my life. And you're the first person ever to ask the question of what it is. Do you think he saw in your eyes? I love that question. That's a great, so great. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. I appreciate that. It's, yeah. I, you know, it, it, to be to be honest, it's something that I wonder about in, in my own life often because I, um, I too have been in situations where I feel like I was peering at a situation and asking questions about other people and it, and it only dawned on me later that I, 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 who do they see when they look at me? I had a, I had, this is not in the book, but it's a relevant story and I, and I can relate it to a moment in the book in a minute, but but just because your question has really struck a chord in me in thinking about empathy here for a second. And um, I, I often share the story when I do, when I visit schools and, and talk to young people about race and racism. And I, I talk about an experience I had in 10th grade when I uh, read the, the novel Frankenstein. Um, and I remember reading it. The, there's a, a moment in the book where the Frankenstein's creation is uh, running through, uh, has, has broken free and is, is, is running through a village. Um, and uh, all the, the villagers, you know, uh, chase the creation out, you know. And in, in my mind, as I'm reading that scene, I was reading this scene in class. And in my mind, you know, I, maybe I had already seen the movie ahead of time, so I knew what the book was about. But I, I could see the pitchforks and I could see the torches and I could see the, the villagers chasing the creation out. But I remember I was struck so suddenly as I read that, as I read that scene because I felt such compassion for the creation, uh, for Frankenstein's creation in that scene. I was dumbstruck and I remember looking up and my teacher, my 10th grade teacher, Mr. Riley said, Brendan, what's the matter with you? You look like you see, you've seen a ghost. And I said, when am I those villagers? When am I the one chasing someone out of the cafeteria? Or out of the you know the group of friends hanging out on the stoop after school, it 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 sort of terrified me to think about right to, that that I all, all too often could be one of those villagers, and for me I relate this to my own thinking about white racial identity because as I think about racism in America, 
my fear is that I'm, I'm ignorant of the times when I'm one of those villagers, even though I don't want to be, I all too often might be. Um, and that's, uh, it's something that's why I want to investigate this and I want to investigate my advantages, but I also want to investigate my personal interactions and make sure that I'm doing a better job seeing human beings across the table from me as opposed to, um, you know, objects in a study or, or something that, that whatever I might be doing, <laughs> uh, unknowingly even. So anyway, forgive me for the long story, but I, but you've, you've touched a chord in me of thinking about empathy and, um, and it means a lot. You gave the example of the GI Bill from your own life and the effect it had on your grandfather and how that came down to you. Tell us another story from your own life that's informed you about institutionalized racism. Sure. So another story that I'm uh, I'm going to connect to here that that I uh, have in the in the book that I think illuminate quite a bit. Uh, the larger effects of institutional racism on our, on our community. So I grew up uh, outside of Boston, and um, many of my friends who are who are black often uh, casually refer to Boston as up south, uh, meaning essentially uh, that it's a pretty racist town for all of its um, you know elite universities and uh, liberal trappings. It's actually a pretty racist town, and one of the ways it's racist is how deeply segregated um, the you know, real estate still is in, in Boston and certainly was when I was growing up. Um, and that, and how that affects who goes to school where. And so I went to a Catholic school north of Boston in the very predominantly white communities north of Boston. And my basketball team, when I was in high school, was playing um, another Catholic school on the south side of Boston the southwest side of Boston, and the southwest side of Boston is where uh, it's predominantly black. It's this. It's, it's this is how the segregation works in 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 Boston. And um, uh, I, at the time, I was on the junior varsity team, and uh, we we lost our game as I as I remember in my mind because I wasn't feeling good, and I know I missed some shots. But uh, as everyone knows, the more important game was the varsity game. And so we were, you know, in the stands cheering on our varsity team and our varsity team was also losing. And I will never forget the chant that came up from the crowd around me from my school and the fan van and whatnot, yelling to the other team, the other team's families who were all uh, black and brown folks. That's all right. That's OK. You're going to work for us one day. Oh, my gosh. Awful, awful, oh. awful thing to say. And. In their minds, this is a chant, by the way, that they would have said to other teams as well. But because of segregation in our in, in our housing, because of segregation in our education, because of institutional racism, in that moment, my community is also perpetuating deep interpersonal racism in the moment. Because even if, I mean, the people in my community obviously felt entitled and, and, and superior in, in ways that are um, awful, but, but, to, but as for, for a nearly all white crowd to say that to a nearly all black and brown crowd, it also has another layer of deep racism that is reflective of our history of this country. So uh, that's another example that I, that I bring up in the book, and I, um, I hope I don't give away all my examples here today, but, but I, I, uh, no, I want you to, I I want you to give away a lot of examples, which will entice people to go to Amazon and push a button and have your book show up in their door in two days. (laughs) Right, right. No, I appreciate it. But, but I, but I, 
I think part of the reason for writing the book is, as I've heard from communities of color um, and black uh, communities and indigenous communities, um, when the call to action for white folks to get involved in um, movements for racial justice, I think must include us acknowledging our own proximity to the real horrors of racism. No matter how liberal or, or open-minded we might be, I, as white folks, our proximity to the horrors of racism um, is frighteningly close. Uh, I have another story about that that I'll, I'll share too, but I'm, I'm not sure if anything I've shared so far has um, inspired any other stories on your end. When I was training as a marathon runner, my training partner was a black man named Wayne Green. And we would run together every morning. And we ran several marathons together, I'm very pleased to say. And one day we were sitting and talking after years of practicing together. And he told me what it was like running with me. Hmm. We ran in my neighborhood. It was in the East Bay of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. It was a little uh, town right next to Berkeley uh, called Kensington. And we used to run through Wildcat Canyon, which was part of a place called Tilden Park. And it was predominantly, almost exclusively, white folks. Hmm. And what he said to me that caused tears to run down my face is that the entire time for those years that we were running in training, he was aware of the stares that he got from people as we passed them on the trail. They're looking at him and then looking over at me. And he knew what those stares meant. And he felt them. And so for the entire time of our training, we were not only focusing on our psychophysical training, but he was having to deal with the stairs and what they meant and what they might lead to. Yeah. And that is, that is an important story. And I just got to get those, those runs that we did were uh, 30 years ago. And I just got together with Wayne recently we had a lovely weekend together. He and his wife, Rose Guggenheim, were here oh, wow. with my wife, Trolley, and I, and they spent the weekend with us. And we reminisced about that. And, and, wow. I, rem and I reminded him of that story, just one of many in his life. I can imagine. I can imagine. But and I, and here's the, the point I wanted to make, Brendan. Yeah. And, and this is, I don't know if it's shame on me, or it's really not. It's, it's lack of awareness on me, that that entire time, with all my hypervigilance as a psychologist and my noticing things so much that I drive my friends crazy, <laughs> I did not, <laughs> I did not, I was not aware of the stares that Wayne was getting during those years of running together. I, I, I appreciate your point, and I, I think it, I think it's all too true for so many of us who are white. We've been conditioned not to not to see it. I mean, Ralph Ellison wrote Invisible Man for a reason, right? Um, Where I, I I really take to heart your the 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 moral or the almost maybe sadly the punchline of your of your story that all too often white folks like us really don't see. We we and and I think that I my hope in in trying to expose this and in, in just the way that you've set up this interview, which I really, really appreciate is this, this kind of acknowledging this, 
it's it's not a confession maybe as much as it's a um it's an unearthing of a of a of a previous um ignorance and trying to emerge into something that is a bit more of an of of an acceptance or an understanding um I think it's. I think what you're talking about is uh, precisely what uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about in 1968 when he spoke at Gross Point High School and said uh, there are two Americas living side by side. Um, and I and I I I mention this in in the book because I I share some stories in the book about traveling around the country uh, on a book tour uh, side by side, uh, one black author, one white author, myself, and, and, and what it was like to have similar, similar interactions to the story you just shared, whether we walked into a hotel or um, the schools we were visiting or bookstores or airport security uh, or on the plane itself, um, you know, time and time and time again to, to, to walk side by side and to, and to begin to recognize, my God, we we are living in two different realities, um, and it's uh, and it's shameful because um, it, it not it, that's maybe not the right word. I, I there's something um, I don't know. You'll be able to analyze the use of this word, but there's something so um, uh, impotence feeling <laughs> about not being able to do anything about it. Um, in the moment, not being able to change what you know is wrong in the moment, um, and and yet getting angry and 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 things like that. I remember my friend said to me, my friend who who was black, who, uh, who I was in the bank with that day, the, per the uh, the earlier story. I was so livid, I was so mad, and I was and we I was mad in the bank, and I was mad afterwards when we got into the cab. And he said, if I was that angry, I'd be mad all day. And and. I think part of what my job is now as a white person who's trying to better understand my white racial identity is that I have to I have to listen to that part of the story too, not just the moments of of indignation, but but listen to the depth of patience that my friend was also sharing with me and ask myself what can I learn from that and how can I how can I learn from that to also help make a, a more racially just world. You asked me earlier what that black boy on the line at the military base might have seen in my eyes as yeah. I saw the fear in his. And when I project myself to be him or a black person in America, I project myself as being angry 100% of the time. I project mm. myself as waking up angry. I project myself as being angry all day. I project myself as going to sleep angry. I cannot imagine living with black skin, having been subjugated for over 400 years and not being livid. Yeah. I, it just seems like I would be in a, in a world of pain and anger all the time. I mean, the very fact that every single time I leave my home, I risk being profiled and pulled over whereas white people can just drive around like regular folks and not that very fact alone would make me livid. And I, yeah. I, don't, even, I don't even want to think about what behavior I would take or what I would might do. But this is something I want to get to in the second uh, half of our uh, uh, meeting today. We're talking about examples of racism. I hope you'll come forth with a couple more without revealing too much from your book. But after we get you know, more examples, 
I want to hear from you about solutions. Examples of the racism are important to learn from, but it's the solutions where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, I agree. Uh, You know, I have a, I can, I can connect our two segments if you don't mind, because I'd love it. uh, I have a story from the book, but it gets to solutions. (laughs) Okay. And, and, (laughs) and I, um, I, I have, I'll share two stories if if that's okay. Um, the, the first the first is um, I was speaking to a a school in uh, outside of Portland, Maine, and it's a predominantly white uh, community. It's a predominantly white state. It's a predominantly certainly very predominantly white school. But there was a black girl um, who asked a pretty profound question. Um, we had been talking about the demographic shifts in our country and talking about how for the first time ever in public schools, at least in America, uh, K through 12, white students are, are now a majority uh, minority. Um, they're no longer the majority of students in K through 12 public schools in America. Um, and and that's the, it's the first time ever in our country's history uh, for a variety of reasons. But um, this, this black girl in a, you know, predominantly white school asked this question, which was um, to, to maybe not exactly word for word, but, but something very close to this, it was, um, uh, will it, will it take you, meaning us white folks being the minority to finally empathize with the stories of racism that people like me have been sharing for years and years and years. And I, I, I found that question so, uh, profoundly disturbing uh, on the one hand, because I, I felt like I wasn't sure how to answer that 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 really difficult question in a way that did justice to to the pain that it I I, I think it may have emerged from, but I think there was an underlying um, subtext to the question that was why don't you believe me when I tell these stories? Why don't you believe me? And I I um, so I think when we start talking about solutions, though though this may seem um, counter to a lot of the the contemporary talk about about anti-racism, I still firmly believe that we have to change some hearts. I still firmly believe that we have to um, we have to do our I would like to do my part to try to change some hearts um, and some minds and maybe most particularly some ears <laughs> uh, of some of the white folks that I that I know and have grown up with and are and are in my professional uh, world and and in the community I live in. We have to be better listeners, and I think I think um, when people are asking for solutions, I think people um, sometimes minimize just how important listening really is. And I think if um, uh, more white newscasters, for example, more white folks in media um, were were bringing guests on to share these kinds of stories, their personal stories of how racism has affected their lives or their jobs or their you know uh, entry into into careers, etc. To really let those stories flourish, and for those of us who are not accustomed to, to listening to them, to listen to them more, is a step in the right direction. I have more that I want to share, but I, I'm, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are, especially given your expertise, <laughs> um, uh, of, of, of maybe where you think listening fits into all this. When I'm Chemical dependence is one of my areas of specialty, uh, as is psychedelic medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, psychedelic medicine has experienced... A, uh, a war on drugs for the last uh, 
85 years, since 1935. And uh, that war on drugs has really been a war on people. It has not been a war on drugs. A war on drugs is if you take a bunch of drugs, you put them in a room and you burn them up. Uh, mm -hmm. A war on people is when you take the people who are using the drugs and you put them in jail, incarcerate them. And yes. the, the, the largest number of people who have suffered incarceration from the war on drugs are people of color of their skin. Uh, so, yes. And th that is not arguable. That is a fact. So, it's been, it's, so it has been a war on people that's been going on for, for over 85 years, really. It went against the, uh, the Asian people. Uh, they used uh, opium and they were thrown away in jail for that. Uh, they linked uh, marijuana with black and Hispanic people, put them in jail for that. Uh, mm -hmm. And that has been going on. And, and so th that is a part of, of racism in my specialty in terms of the answer to your question. But the, the bigger answer to the question is somewhat related to something that's going on with the vaccinations right now. The head of our local hospital in the town I live in, Fort Bragg, uh, Dr. William Miller, who's the chief of staff, uh, he told me, and I, I hope he doesn't mind me outing him on this, but he told me this week that he is so discouraged uh, in trying to talk to and listen to the anti-vaxxers that he has given up. And I mentioned my specialty of chemical dependence. And what I teach in chemical dependence is that there are times when you're dealing with an irrational problem that you must use irrational communication. Because if you try to deal logically and rationally with a person who's irrational, you're spe they're speaking Greek and you're speaking French. You're not going to get anywhere. You're, you're, you're right. communicating in two different languages. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what extent and I, uh, that we're, we're speaking two different languages. Because you very clearly at the beginning of this interview stated, which is something that many of us believe, namely that racism is a social problem. But I bring your attention to the fact that many racists see it as a biological issue because they actually make the argument that black people are biologically lesser. Right. Now, how do we talk to people who make that outrageous claim? From my perspective, we're dealing with irrationality. So what kind of irrational response can we give them if we're hoping to win them over to some form of what we consider? So I, I, I really appreciate what you're saying here. And I, and I struggle very much with crossing that non-listening divide. I mean, I think actually you're alluding to a, <laughs> a larger problem in our country in general. But I, I think, um, at least as I see it, and um, I'm going to dodge your question for a second with my first answer, <laughs> and then try to, and then try to come back to your, I think, really profound question. Um, Good, and I'm going to try and remember to come back to what you just alluded to <laughs> as the bigger problem. I, I, I took, I took note. I took note. Good, <laughs> good, good. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm burning up with with blush right now. So anyway, the um, it looks good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. The uh, the uh, what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that I I think that there is real value not in focusing all of our efforts, those of us who care about racial justice, not in focusing our efforts in 
who I see as, um, frankly, more of a, a smaller number of people out there who are so outrageously racist that they believe in the biological uh, racism, but rather to focus our efforts on igniting and engaging and energizing the many folks who, um, quite frankly, are sitting on the sidelines, most of whom are white, who I think in their heart of hearts really think that if we could do away with racism, the world would be a better place. But they're not participating in helping make that happen. And for me, I think if we focus our efforts there, then we can begin to make changes in policy and, and, and begin to address some of the real problems in uh, systemic and institutional racism, um, not excluding your very first question of this, uh, of this interview, um, the, in ways that can have demonstrable effects for folks, you know, in the years to come. And in addition, you know, begin to change, um, uh, some of the hearts and minds of, of folks as we move along. So I, I, I think that's where, that's where the efforts, I, many people that I work with, uh, feel is where we should go as opposed to trying to have that rational, irrational, uh, um, conversation now, but to address that question that you asked, I, I still, because of who I am, not because of, of fact, but because of my irrational hope, <laughs> I believe that, um, that, uh, everybody, regardless of where they are right now, uh, has the potential and the opportunity to see the humanity in others. And, um, Maybe that's irrational on my part to, to have that hope, but it's part of what drives me to get up in the morning. And um, I have to believe that when given the opportunity, um, we can find a way through the great irrational and absurd um, experience of uh, listening deeply and carefully and loving that we may be able to, to change some of the, the, the deeply racist hearts and minds. I, I know I sound naive to probably many people who are listening, but, but I, I have to live with hope because of all the hope that has come before me. I have, to, I have to try to have that hope because what kind of hope did folks in the 60s have during the civil rights movement? What kind of hope did people have in the 1920s um, when trying to grapple with uh, the, the problems of, of Jim Crow racism in America? What kind of hope did the ab abolitionists have? They had hope and I want to honor it with mine. I would never want to tarnish hope and optimism with skepticism and cynicism, because yeah. that is a street that goes to demise. Yeah, yeah. So what I hear you advocating for, please correct me if I'm mistaken here, is that we should address the silent majority, the ones who are standing aside, the one third of the American people who sat out the American Revolution. Those are the... <laughs> The, yeah, uh, the, those are the people that we should be talking to to awake them a bit from their slumber or or or, or motivate them out of their complacency. I think so, and 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 to some extent, I think that's true. And 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 maybe one way that I would word it too is that I think I think people don't realize just how close to it all they already are, and sometimes our silence. And I, I put in, in the book, I use an example because I, I work with young people um, of what it means to witness somebody bullying someone else in the classroom. Um, I'm right there. And if I'm a witness to it um, and don't do anything to stop the bully, then from the person who's being bullied's perspective, I look like I'm on the bully's side. 
but I'm not. In my heart, I wish that bully would go away. I wish he would stop. I wish he would, you know, not do this to the other kid in the class. Well, I have to stand up to the bully. Otherwise, he's going to keep doing it. And I think that's part of what I, I, I know that's reductive for probably for many of your listeners, but I think it's a, an, an appropriate analogy for how racism works. We can't stand by. We have to stand up and, and, and try to stop it. And I think the best ways to do that are to try to address it locally in our communities with local policies, whether that's helping out at the school board level or whether that's helping out uh, to make sure that um, the institutions in our communities um, have fair hiring practices that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, are, are uh, tr- tried and true in their in their practice of of, uh, of uh, trying to be as equitable as possible in their hiring policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about the place of the police in racism. Yeah. Now, I, I, you're much more of a researcher, I think, on this topic than I. I'd like to hear from you. My research indicates that the FBI indi- uh, uh, presented a report some over 20 years ago indicating that white supremacists had a plan, an actual plan, to infiltrate police departments around the United States. Have you heard about that or know anything about that? Yeah, I, I, so I've read, there were a number of news articles that came out uh, over the last year that, that spoke to that as well, or, or in the last couple of years that, that, um, that, that speak to that directly. And um, I, I do not address that specifically in my book. Um, I think it requires quite a bit more study and it requires quite a bit more analysis because it's, it, it, and this is not in the book, but it's but it's connected to what I said before about your point that you know we're speaking two different languages in our country. I think um, what you mentioned just now makes me think about what happened on January sixth this year, and the the kinds of um, the kinds of deeply dangerous ideologies that some uh, white supremacist groups uh, uh, have for other fellow Americans, and 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 it how consciously they are trying to um, manipulate our democracy by, by getting involved in, in institutions left and right. Now, that all said, like I said, that requires a lot more research, and that's not the research that I've done for, for this book, um, but it's something that, that, that scares me as a human being and someone who just cares about other people in, in the world. Um, what I do have uh, uh, quite a bit of research on in the book is, is talking about... Um, the statistical differences between um, people who were stopped and frisked in New York City, for example, versus um, uh, and 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 people who are whose cars are searched when pulled over, pulled over by the police in states such as Arizona, for example, um, uh, an indigenous person is three times as likely to have his or her car searched when pulled over than a white person. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's also true that a in, in over the course of the you know over the over the whole country, it's also true that um, a uh, an indigenous person is three times as likely to die in their interactions than a white person with law enforcement. Um, for black people, it's two times as likely. Um, for 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 acts of violence, uh, the 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 number jumps up um, astronomically. So. Th- um, these are statistically true, but it's not also the, it's not only white supremacists, um, uh, out and out white supremacists who are at fault in these interactions with law enforcement. It's part of a much broader uh, uh, problem that that can be addressed again. I think with with appropriate uh, policy, 
Um, but I, but we also have to think a lot about uh, reviewing who is in positions of power. Um, it's one thing for a white supremacist to be, um, you know, uh, a store clerk or um, uh, an accountant or uh, such and such. But if, if a, a white supremacist is a, a law enforcement agent um, who is legally allowed to carry uh, a firearm, you know, the potential for, for immediate harm afterwards is, is, is pretty high. When I was 17 years old, still at the University of Illinois, now I'm a sophomore, I'm driving <laughs> through town with my girlfriend, Marguerite Davis, she is cocoa color of skin, definitely a, a black woman. Mm -hmm. And we get stopped by a Champaign-Urbana cop, uh, supposedly for a, uh, a broken taillight. And uh, he looks in the car and he puts the flashlight on her and he puts the flashlight in my eyes and he says, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And I said, wow. I, I think I'm going out on a date with my girlfriend. And he says, wrong, you're going to jail. And he took us both to jail. And that was my first experience at 17 years old, scared the bejeebers out of me and put me in a cold cell, uh, put her in a cell somewhere else. Now, oh yeah, fortunately, uh, they, they let the university know and the dean of students came and got us right out. Uh, you know, within wow. a certain number of hours, but that yeah. is a that that was a uh, a shaking story that's related to the profiling, because I was just a, a I was a seventeen year old wet behind the ears kid, just uh, you know yeah. driving around with my girlfriend, and right uh, right right. I, that's I, I, I mean these are these are scary stories right and the and and the kinds of. As as you were alluding to earlier, you know that for all too many of my friends who are black uh, and and folks of color um, at large, driving behind the wheel of the car when they see those lights flash behind them, they are terrified for their life. Oh yes, and and that's and what a different experience for me. And, and so what I take for granted is that I'm being pulled over for an infraction, or what I take for granted is that. You know, okay, I've done something, you know, I've, I've broken the law, but it's, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a minor thing. Um, you know, I, I, I can, I can move on with my life and maybe I'll be, I'll take responsibility for this or maybe I won't. Um, what a different, what, a, what a thing to take for granted, um, the safety of my own life. Whereas so many people in our, in our country cannot take for granted the safety of their own lives especially women of color, I would argue. If I were a black man, I would never, ever oh, get behind the wheel of a car without wearing a, a white shirt, a tie, and a sport jacket. I would recommend that to every single black man in this country because that alone is going to present somewhat, I can't say how much, somewhere between zero and a lot, somewhat mm -hmm. of an obstacle to being demeaned because the uni yeah. because a uniform in our culture uh, says so much. I, yeah. I, and I, and I wish, I wish we could see the dignity of all people because, you know, it's, it's, it's just a suit and a tie does not 
does not make you one thing or another. And, and uh, I mean, I appreciate your point, but I, but I, it just breaks my heart to think about how many people's just basic human dignity is dismissed at first glance. And, um, I actually, I share a story in the book about, about, uh, getting pulled over by the police and essentially what I got away with going 30 miles over the speed limit, which is not only speeding, but it's also reckless driving. And, uh, you know, the, the long and the short of it is that the police officer, I was driving a, a minivan full of white boys like me and, um, um, and the, uh, police officer did not give me a ticket, did not give me a written warning and, and told me to go home, be safe and keep my friends safe. And the reason why I share that story is I, I use that as an example to talk about um, all the compassion that was immediately afforded to me, all the all the dignity that was immediately afforded to me um, that I that I'm grateful for. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thank you, and and I have not ever made that mistake again. I don't want to endanger anyone's life on the road like that. It's it's recklessly stupid behavior, but it's also true that I have to reckon with how different my experience is than uh, the experience that so many of my friends of color have. Um, and, and, and that should motivate me to do something about it. Well, I wanted to ask you, what got you involved in this topic? You've heard what got me involved. You heard the story from when I was a little boy. You heard a couple of stories from college, uh, you know, and, and I've got one to, uh, to end with that I'll, I'll share with you. It's a great story. But what, what got you involved in this area? And what got you involved? I believe you're also involved in in uh, in women's issues, in in the inequality the facing females in the United States. And if you just yeah. maybe finish up by telling us how did you get involved in these two social injustice uh, issues in your life? I I, I appreciate that. You know, I, I um, I, I'm a I'm a kid from I'm a kid from my own culture, right? And I um and I I have to admit that. Uh, the, the very first concert that I ever went to, <laughs> the very first concert that I ever went to was a U2 concert. I was a pretty fortunate guy. And, um, and there was, a, there was a, a band that opened up for U2. Uh, it was Michael Franti and the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. And, um, and they just blew my mind with their music and, and whatnot. And I got their cassette tape back, back when we got those. Um, and I listened to the lyrics and it opened up a different world for me. I honestly, it opened up a different world of, of beginning to recognize, um, to, to think more about social justice. Um, and I think that's the power of art and the power of, of music, the power of, um, visual art, the power of dance, the power of words that they can, um, they can motivate the heart um, uh, to grow, and uh, that's what that music did for me, and that's what that artist did for me, and that was a that was the beginning of a journey that evolved. And there are many stories that, that, that add to that, but that's I would I would argue that's one of the seeds that, that sparks it all. And, and hats always off to um, hats are always off to the artists who can who can wake up our hearts. And that oh, way. that's a great story. Have you told Michael that? No, I, I, I would love to meet him someday. It would be, I don't even know if I could speak. I'd be so <laughs> starstruck. Well, <laughs> I know Michael Fronte, as a matter of fact, by coincidence. What? <laughs> and, oh, my God. And, and, uh, and I met him at Wilbur Hot Springs and, uh, in California. You can look up Wilbur Hot Springs on Google. And we were involved in getting him to, to do a, uh, a whole uh, presentation at Wilbur out in the middle of uh, nature. Uh, and he, uh, I know his story about how he went to Iraq with his guitar and, and walked the streets 
uh, playing the wow. guitar. Have you ever seen that little documentary? He walked. I have not. He walked the bombed out streets of Iraq with his guitar, singing and playing for the people. It's quite a story. So I have to check that out. Yeah, I really appreciate that. What a what a connection. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, that's a great story. He's quite a guy. Yeah. I I want to uh, tell you one more story from my life because you're collecting these stories and you're doing such great work in this in this area of racial uh, injustice. Uh, I for many years I met with what, what what's called a men's group, you know, where men get together on a weekly basis yeah. and talk about male issues and issues in our culture. And uh yeah. It was a, a group of quite prominent men, and one of them was the vice chancellor of the University of California, Davis. And he was a, wow. a former, a Russ Ellis is his name, Dr. Russ Ellis. And he was a former NCAA champion. And he's about six, two or three, beautiful upright posture, a very distinguished looking black man, and dresses you know, just beautifully, beautifully in, in great tweeds, which I love. And the meetings would, would go from house to house of the different men. And we all lived around the University of California in Berkeley. And I moved from there over to Marin County across the bay, one bridge across, because my yeah. little girl got accepted at a school there. And so we moved to uh, make it possible for her to go without us commuting like crazy. It would have been uh, three hours a day of driving to get her yeah. there, right? So we moved. <laughs> and we're having the meeting of the men's group at my house, and uh, my new house there. And I'm looking out the window, uh, and I see uh, Russ drive up. And I had a gate. And Russ drives up to the gate, and then he turns around and leaves. And we don't see him again. And finally, about a half hour later, he comes back and he comes to the gate again. This time I have time. I push the buzzer and he drives in. And I said, Russ, what happened there? You drove up to the gate and you left. He said, well, I drove up to the gate and I thought maybe I was at the wrong place because you had a gate and you didn't seem like a gate kind of guy. Right. <laughs> okay. And I, and I understood that. I'd never been a gate kind of guy before. And... Uh, and I said, well, where did, did you go to my neighbors and, uh, and ask for help? And he looked at me and he said, oh, no, Richard, I would never do a thing like that. And I said, what do you mean, oh, no? What, what, why wouldn't you go to a neighbor? He said, Richard, you don't get it. I don't want to see the look on a white person's face when a black man knocks on his door unexpected at seven o'clock in the evening in the dark. I don't want to live with that. And just telling you that story, Brendan, brings tears to my eyes and pain to my heart. Because this was, this was the vice chancellor of the University of California telling us about racism in America. And, and, and that, it, that it happens at such a subtle level, and yet the ripple effect of that is what we're talking about when we talk about the massive issues of systemic and institutional racism in our country. So I, I really appreciate your, your sharing that story with me. I, um, it's one that I will hold as well um, in this you know, grab bag of stories that are, I think, important to share with people. I wanted to share it with you because I know you'll use it well.
I appreciate that. And I certainly will with great honor <laughs> uh, to know it and to have heard it. Thank you very much for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health and Politics, but mostly thank you for what you're doing to elaborate, to clarify, to educate all of us on this issue of institutionalized racism in the United States. Bless your heart, Brendan. Take care. Right back at you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.